Welcome to the Smart Industry Podcast, Remaking Industry, where we dive deep into the tools, techniques, and technologies that are accelerating digital transformation. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Chris McNamara, Editor-in-Chief with Smart Industry. We're thrilled to have you join us. Today, we're talking to Ali Nickel, Head of Engagement with Iotics. We're looking at the concept of boundless data ecosystems. We talk about data all the time in this world, um, but um, as, as our knowledge of and application of uh, data analytics uh, matures, um, it branches off into new concepts. So I'm very excited to dive into boundless data ecosystems. Um, Ali, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Chris. Very well Thanks this morning. for joining us. Let's get to know you a little bit. Um, kind of a fun question. Um, what's a hobby of yours outside of work? What, uh, what's a passion of yours? Well, so uh, a passion of mine um, would be rugby. Um, apologies to, to all the US folks. Um, I realize American football is obviously a vastly superior sport. Um, <laughs> but, but passion of mine is rugby. Although in, in truth, when it comes to hobbies, I have two children under four. Um, so there is not a great deal of time for anything at, yeah. at the moment, uh, other than looking after them, especially with the crazy two years that we've had uh, going on. There's been yeah, a, right. a lot of children a lot of children around the virtual office yeah yeah your hobbies are picking up after children and and washing clothes <laughs> exactly so exactly yeah. so well, hearing hearing the plot to frozen uh seven or eight thousand <laughs> times a day and where's home base for you uh so at the moment i'm uh based just outside of london in the uk okay okay uh, and tell me um who and what is iotics and tell me about your role there yeah, so um, I lead engagement, which is a, a sort of euphemistic term for being a cheerleader here at IOTIX, mm -hmm. uh, alongside partners and channel, um, really driving uh, this concept of boundless data ecosystems. And what IOTIX is, is we're a startup. We've been around for um, a little over eight years, um, looking at creating a next generation data architecture. And what I mean by that is what IOTIX is enabling right now is the secure selective sharing of right time data between multiple parties. Um, and this is really where that, that kind of concept of the boundless data ecosystem comes in. It's this idea about how do we share the right data at the right time with the right people, yeah. uh, all the while making sure it's secure, it's protected, um, and that everyone involved in that ecosystem is confident uh, that they are only sharing with the people they want to share with uh, and only sharing what it is they want to share. Yeah. Lofty goals. Um, but let's let's get into the specifics here, since we're using this terminology. What do you mean by the by the boundless component there? What is uh, you know we're all pretty familiar with the data ecosystem in its various sure. forms. But what do you mean by boundless? So I think the real distinction is that it's about decentralization rather than centralization. Okay. So most architectures, whether we're talking uh, within an organization or across a data ecosystem, are fundamentally centralized. The management of the infrastructure, the governance, the access policy, whatever it might be. A boundless data ecosystem isn't one that is unprotected or open, but it's one where those boundaries, be they internal, um, based on you know, governance or regulatory constraints, or whether they're across the supply and demand chain, aren't an impediment to the interoperability of the data. So a boundless data ecosystem is one that grows with need. And what, what we're seeing across utilities, transport, manufacturing, uh, government, connected places, built environment, is that people are rapidly realizing that the 
artificial boundaries in our technology you know is it this sector is it this purpose is it about assets or is it about people actually aren't how we work they're not they're not really how we need to do business and so boundless data ecosystems are enabling the autonomous interoperability across those boundaries so that interoperability what let's what's the next step what does that lead to what capabilities does like this approach of a boundless data ecosystem offer what are the wins what are the applications Sure, absolutely. So the, the most important thing is about the cooperation it, it, uh, it enables and the ability to develop cooperative services. And I use cooperative deliberately rather than collaborative because in collaborative, there is still that center, right? You and I agreed on what it is we're going to do, how we're going to do it and what it is we're going to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, what we see in cooperative systems is that we agree that we, we need to interoperate, we need to share data but we don't have to agree on the same outcome, but we learn more from each other um, than we can do independently. So in a, in a closed system, you have to know everything. You have to own everything. So the applications you can build are limited by the data you have, the access you have, and your ability to control identities. Mm-hmm. Um, in cooperative spaces, you know some things and someone else knows some things. So uh, let's use a transport uh, example here. We worked with Rolls-Royce Power Systems who manufacture, uh, well, power systems uh, for, for large platforms. So uh, trains, um, uh, submarines, tanks, et cetera. Uh-huh. And so they, they generate uh, power units for trains. Um, but those power units are installed on trains that are owned by Hitachi. Uh, The trains that are owned by Hitachi are then operated by train operating companies and run on infrastructure that's owned by a fourth organization. Now, each of those organizations in turn has their own data and their own uh, visibility of what they're doing. But by creating, in this case, a a boundless rail data ecosystem, they're able to share little bits of information with each other, which meant for the very first time, they were able to do real time uh, recognition of where, where specific trains were, not the 720 from Boston to New York, but actually um, where is the specific train unit number that needs servicing? Has it gone off schedule? Is it going to be in the right place? Mm -hmm. And independently, those organizations don't know all that information. So their ability to share suddenly means they can deliver services. Um, We see the same thing uh, in the built environment when you start looking at how do you bring blue light services and uh, healthcare and um, water companies, power companies, how do they start sharing information with each other to deliver services to protect vulnerable customers in the event of extreme weather events, for example, mm-hmm. um, or with the rise of new green fuel system, you know, uh, electric vehicles is fundamentally changing the nature of how energy systems need to be able to interoperate. Yeah, and it's right. no longer a monopoly, right? It's no longer a, a, an organization at the center saying, we own everything, we run it all, we know it all, so if they don't know it all and they don't own it all, how are they going to deliver the service? That right. means that you can identify which rural EV charging point you need for your particular vehicle um, in the Midwest as it goes cross country from coast to coast. Yeah. So I think, you know, I always think about hurdles to, you know, concepts like this and challenges that are in play. And, and one of the first things that jumps to mind as you just described the setup there is, is these four parties, let's say, let's use Hmm. the train was a great example. You know, it sounds great. It's probably easier to apply internally within the enterprise. And as you add a a second stakeholder organization or a third or a fourth, 
that complexity has got to befuddle some of these efforts or the team's willingness to engage with this stuff or the, the uh, maturity of understanding of these approaches and concepts and technologies. What are some of the, the, the main hurdles with kind of broadening the um, hands in the data pot like this? Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting point, Chris. And I think one of the pieces is that there is a recognition that you need to do this progressively. I was actually listening uh, to your podcast uh, earlier and, and your guest from Deloitte on talking about, well, start with an asset. You know, don't start with the whole factory as your starting sure. point. And the same is true for ecosystems. So start with your internal data ecosystem, which is, is already bounded, right? I mean, in most organizations we talk to, your systems for managing people are different from the systems for managing assets, for example. Sure. So, so you start there and that, what that helps with is then the evolution of trust. You start to see, okay, I can share and, and, and I can see how that works. But it's also then about recognizing that you get value instantly from that ecosystem. And we, the way we do it at IOTICS is we base it on digital twins. You know, so we virtualize everything, which is, which, which is then what enables the security aspect. Right. So start, start with digital twins of small assets and see what they can share and progressively share more. And really, the, the bit that I love is that this is just a learning from how the world works, right? I mean, like, what do you, you mean? and I, well, you and I are chatting here. And I don't tell you everything about myself mm -hmm. in our first meeting. Yeah. So I, what I progressively do is I progressively share information with you and I see how you use that information and what you do with it and how you use it. Right. Um, and that enables me to progressively add more. And that's what we see as the way of overcoming that internal barrier. Cause you're absolutely right for, uh, well, I mean, as long as you like really, but certainly for the last, three decades, the focus has been on don't share, don't, you know, don't let it out of your organization, don't give it to other people. Um, it is only secure if we control it. Well, and the only way counter to, to true connectivity in this respect where you're trying to absolutely. So right. you, you can only get around that if you kind of progressively start saying, well, look, share something that isn't particularly commercially sensitive, but is something that you have that the other person doesn't. And then you will start seeing a benefit almost instantly. From, from suddenly saying, oh, actually, if we just, we won't share all the, how the engine's performing and everything else. We'll just share the GPS location of it. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we'll combine that with our knowing, uh, us knowing the train uh, schedule for maintenance. Okay, well, those are two pieces of information, which truthfully, in most systems, people are already sharing, right? They're already right. sending each other CSV files and, right. and, and, and emails saying, where's that thing going to be? What, what's your delivery schedule for, for this part or this component? That information is already being shared. It just isn't being shared in a way that's trackable and interoperable. So right. if you start there, I think that, that helps you develop that evolution. That's certainly what we've seen with our customers is there's a recognition that you start seeing value. You start developing trust in the other people in your ecosystem without needing to go all in. So at all times, you retain control of what you share and with whom. So if you're ever uncomfortable, you can just cut them off. Right. Interesting. Um, we're going to switch gears a little bit here onto a topic that has been really top of mind for the past couple of months here in our universe with our contributors and our community, um, metaverse. Um, yeah. What role does a metaverse play here in this concept of boundless data ecosystems? And, and how, how is the metaverse being employed? Uh, you know, do you have clients who are, who are already reaping wins with this? Or is it still kind of kicking the tires on this or where we're at? So I think from our perspective, the metaverse is still fairly nascent. Yeah, so I know I know there are lots of um, there's lots of good rhetoric about it, um, but truthfully, what I think we're seeing 
in the absence, frankly, of, of these kind of boundless data ecosystems or um, yeah, the, the other the other buzzword doing the rounds is the kind of cyber physical fabrics and, and that kind of thing, uh-huh. is that in the absence of those, what you've actually got are meta worlds. You know, I can go into our system with our set of data and our visualization, and I can look at something in isolation. I think where people are starting to explore, which really excites me, is moving from a kind of souped up virtual reality. I don't want to be overly dismissive, but a kind of souped up virtual reality of, look, I can look at my factory floor to actually saying, well, look, if I can enable other people to come into this world, I can actually create more of a verse, right? That, that Neil Stevenson's universe, this, this, this meta virtual universe, mm-hmm. which I can, we can now navigate around. And suddenly I can see how their products or their supply or their components are working within my virtual factory. Yeah. And, and, and where does my delivery systems come into my vector factory? And that's really exciting. I mean, it's yeah. early stage, but that is some really exciting uses of metaverse and some real justification for why the virtual aspect to it. Because at that level, you can enable people to play, but across your supply and demand chain. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, I mean, yeah, that's something that I think could be transformative. Yeah, it's very exciting stuff. And that we haven't seen you know, at least people openly talking about too much investment or knowledge of these approaches, but a great hunger and, and interest in seeing where uh, the opportunities uh, exist there. So it's, it'll be very interesting to see in the next month and six months and year, five years, um, how that takes hold. Um, another another wor- uh, phrase in your universe is this open world approach. What do you, what is the open world approach? How do you use that phrase and what approach to what and how does this <laughs> other approaches? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the open world approach is really that, that piece around collaboration. It's recognizing that you don't know everything. Yeah. Um, so a closed world approach says I know everything. And as a result, I can model, you know, if I'm doing my simulation of my factory or whatever else, I can, I can model it because I know all the variables. I know everything that's in needed. I control it all. I can validate all the data. I can validate all the models. I can validate all the outcomes. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a classic closed world. And what we saw is people doing that. I mean, by necessity, doing it for factories, doing it for uh, testing of, of um, infrastructure and assets. And then there was a recognition that actually what they needed was an open world approach where you said well i know some things but the absence of a known doesn't mean uh, a negative essentially is the open world approach so you don't say oh because i don't know this it doesn't exist or it isn't true you say i just know these bits who out there might know some other bits sure and what that helps you do is continually refine your models and we're doing some work at the moment um in the uk with a an organization called digitwin who have spent uh, three years developing incredibly sophisticated uh, computational models for, for doing things like um, ground testing of vibration from jets, that kind mm-hmm. of thing, who are just starting to say, actually, what we really need to do is we now need to apply those models flexibly um, and learning from each other longitudinally and on real-time data securely across boundaries well that that requires an open world approach that requires you say well what's available now what can i learn now Um, and then start to fill in the gaps as you go as you learn as you look at the outliers it seems like there's a lot and i'm sure you'd agree this overlaps in all these concepts an open world mindset you know is is critical to applying the metaverse in manufacturing and that you know that replicates the concepts of boundless data ecosystems just connectivity and secure openness and visibility and transparency and, and all across the um, 
state across stakeholders and across the supply chain. For sure, it for sure, and and it's it's a necessity born of the 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 rise of new challenges, right? I mean, so we've we've seen the need for supply chain resilience. Um, we saw uh, with the Panama Canal the need for supply chain reprogramming. Yeah, um, we're seeing a lot of sustainability and net zero challenges emerging. Mm-hmm. Um, where, as you say, all these pieces are coming together because what you really need in, in it you know, is not just the openness and the collaboration, but it's got to have an element of, of autonomous interoperability, right? I mean, I was just today talking to an organization that for uh, in the utility sector that for governance reasons has to do uh, sustainability targets across their business, across their, their um, stakeholders. Yeah. Taking them six months to put that information together for a yearly report. Wow. Yeah, and, and because it's it's in such a number of silos, it's so diverse. They have to go to different people. I mean, that's looking to automate and streamline that. Yeah, process. yeah ha, that's not sustainable. Yeah, the irony of the sustainability report not being sustainable yeah. is is not is not lost. Yeah. So so how do you, how do you automate that? How do you automate it when it's lots of different heterogeneous data types? Yeah. Um, and suddenly, if you can start doing autonomous interoperability, because that's really what we're talking about. If you have an open world approach. You're talking about a data model that is concerned with the metadata, the description, which means that you can start making it autonomous. You can start leveraging the, the visualization of the metaverse, the insights from AI and ML, um, and the cooperative uh, benefits you get from being able to share best practice with people that you're already working with. Right. Um, and I think, I think we are, we, you know, if the last two years, this horrendous period we've been through has taught us anything, is that we we need autonomous solutions for the holistic nature of what we're trying to do, sure. because individuals just can't cope. Yeah, and we hear that across the board. Um, autonomous uh, efforts and, and automation of, of OT assets and remote, you know, all these capabilities. Yeah. And, uh, it, it really is a perfect storm, and there's you know a lot of it is, is born out of negative events, and um, but you know there is that silver lining of, of, of accelerating some of these of these things. Not only just the pandemic, but like the issue in the Panama Canal you mentioned, uh, you know, and a greater demand from from clients and customers who are, who want this transparency and they demand, you know, customization capabilities and speed and, and, and uh, sustainability promises from their providers and things like that. Interesting stuff. I'll come into a head. Um, last question for you here. Let's talk bigger picture. Um, what most excites you in the broader world of digital transformation? Uh, you know, kind of big picture, back things up a little bit. Um, what, uh, what do you find most intriguing coming down the road in the next six months or year or five years? So I think, uh, I think the most exciting thing is that, and actually it goes back to your observation about the metaverse, is that I think what we're starting to see across a whole slew of technologies and platforms and approaches is um, a digital world that isn't simply a mirror of the world that we live in now. Um, and that's really exciting to me because that's reminiscent of when the World Wide Web became the force that it is today you know, in in the early early stages of, of the world wide web you had a kind of uh your your digital shop window your 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 business's website just replicated anything you might have in your shop window right you know, it, it, these are our opening times this is our phone number this is what our stock looks like yeah um and then what you started to see is people saying well hold on actually this is a this is a different um 
uh, abstraction of, of our what else could we do could we offer new services could we do new things and i think within the data world that's we're just at the beginning of that journey and, and some of it as you say born of the necessity of things like sustainability and so on but mm-hmm. um the rise of of um uh, decentralized financing um and so on has meant that people are starting to look at are there different models that data and the digital transformation will enable not just how do we streamline what we do today physically but actually the kind of what if we could why can't we do something different why can't we look at um the way data it operates in a, in a different way and i think that is unbelievably exciting and i think that we're just starting to see people actually looking at what that could mean for their business and what's really exciting to me is that i no longer feel that i have conversations with people that start at first principles yeah. about why do you need digital trans- you know, <laughs> why do you need digital transformation why does this matter like yeah, yeah that that has been swept aside the question yeah. is now do we just recreate everything we were doing physically in a digital space yeah people can't come into the office now they can't visit the construction site do we just mimic what we were doing and what's really exciting is i think we're starting to people people asking the question of no because we had people because that was how our physical space worked we had to work in these ways um actually if we don't have a physical space how might we work so some of the stuff work that fujitsu is doing around co-creation and their services in the metaverse is the beginning of that for me of kind of hold on let's not just get digital post-it notes and digital whiteboards and um yeah <laughs> replicate all all the things that are born of the of the limitations of the physical world right A- actually are there better ways of doing this uh, cranfield university doing some amazing stuff using um digital to change uh timelines and scale of things so that you can look at physical assets and manufacturing systems in a way that that you've never been exposed to it before um and i just think as that comes together we'll see some really creative new businesses and services that are are not just uh the kind of current big four uh technology providers but are genuinely um groundbreaking and possibly from left field yeah it's exciting stuff boy you're a good cheerleader for for the larger world <laughs> not just iotics uh ollie nickel with iotics thank you for joining us here today in the uh, remaking industry podcast it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Cool concepts. And uh, for our listeners, as always, we encourage you to go out and make it a smart day. <laughs>